everyone and welcome back to Toronto True Crime. I'm your host Laura and this is the third episode of this podcast. I have actually done three of these in a day, believe it or not. Um, I am on a bit of a bender for this, I suppose, and I figure while my creative juices are flowing, I should go with it. Here we go. This episode, I will be covering the murders of Oliver Martin and Dylan Ellis, which has come to be known as the Range Rover Murders. The background of this, this crime occurred on June 13th, 2008. Best friends Oliver Martin and Dylan Ellis were shot to death in Dylan's black Range Rover. Dylan was 26 and Oliver was 25 and they had been best friends since grade 6. Dylan was a graduate of a Quebec college and was pursuing a career in photography. Oliver was a graduate of Concordia University in Montreal, and he worked in Toronto's financial district. There was a third person in the car, Oliver's girlfriend. She was sitting in the back seat, and she survived this attack. Just so you all know in advance, the girlfriend has never been named publicly. She's sort of an unknown and a question mark. The background to this story is, on Thursday, June 12, 2008, Dylan Oliver and some friends had gathered to watch a basketball game on television. Around 12.05 a.m., Dylan offered Oliver and his girlfriend a ride home. So they were down in the Trinity Bellwoods area. They were visiting a friend and they were watching, I think it was game four of the Boston Celtics NBA playoffs. Trinity Bellwoods is... Back in 2008, it wasn't the greatest area. Uh, there is some public housing around there. It was still being revitalized. Toronto's really into its revitalization and gentrification. Looking at photos of the scene from back then, it was pretty, I don't want to say rough, but it's definitely improved over the years. People have noted that there were some public housing projects in the area. I don't know how much this comes into play, but it's something to consider. So shortly after leaving their friend's condo, Dylan received a phone call from the friend that whose condo he just left. The friend's name is Andrew Gilchrist. Andrew was calling to say that Dylan had accidentally left with his keys and was wondering if he would come back to his condo to return them. So the story behind that is supposedly Dylan had gone out at some point to pick up Thai food and brought it back to the condo. And for some reason, I'm assuming it's because he probably needed the keys to get let back into the building. He accidentally took them with him. Dylan and Oliver and Oliver's girlfriend drove back from however far they ended up away, and they called Andrew to tell him that they were waiting outside of his building. The plan was to throw the keys over to the fence to Andrew. They were just stopping there for a minute to give him back the keys, and they were planning on keeping the car running. They weren't even planning on getting out of the car. So the windows of the car were rolled down. According to reports, <clears throat> and... This has come from official sources and some unofficial sources. Dylan said something to a man on the street. What's been reported is that he said something along the lines of, hey, how's it going? Very short exchange. 
The next thing that was reported was that this man then walked up to the open window of the car and shot Dylan in the chest. Oliver was in the passenger seat and he yelled out to his girlfriend, who was in the back seat, to get down. The shooter then walked to the front of the car and shot through the front window. The bullet hit Oliver in the chest. Then the man ran off. The girlfriend says she did not get a good look at the shooter because she was hiding in the back seat. From some people have a problem with this report from this girlfriend. I've read different amounts of speculation about this. According to people on blogs and forums, the way that the car, <clears throat> the model of the car was so that it is totally possible that she was hiding in the back seat and the shooter didn't see her. And if she was crouched down, she wouldn't have been able to see the shooter. A lot of people have questioned the girlfriend's story. Uh, I don't want to delve too much into that. Witnesses report a black man with a light complexion riding a bike away from the scene. <clears throat> What's interesting here is that according to police, this particular person was captured on CCTV running away from the scene. This has never been released to the public, which I find kind of surprising. Toronto police, if they're stuck with certain cases, they really, and they go to releasing CCTV footage or images to help in these cases. So either this person was found to have not been linked to the crime at all, or they just haven't released it to the public. The girlfriend in the back seat was the person that made the 911 call. That call has never been released to the public. The police say that this is because it's quite emotional and disturbing, and they don't see it as being appropriate to be disseminated to the media and the public. So once the police arrived on scene, the SUV was still in park with the engine running. Dylan and Oliver still had their seatbelts on. An ambulance transported Dylan and Oliver to St. Michael's Hospital, where they were pronounced dead. There was a ton of media coverage immediately following this crime. I personally remember seeing it all over the news. I remember this crime very well. What's interesting is when I actually went in to research this, the majority of the information was clustered immediately following the crime and then on the one-year anniversary, and media coverage and police releasing information has been practically non-existent since 2009. It's been surprisingly difficult to find out new information. Over time, I was under the impression that police tended to release more and more information to the public to try and generate leads, but it's possible that the police just don't have any more information to release to the public. There were a couple things of note um, on September 24th, 2008, with so few clues to work with, police posted a $50,000 reward for information leading to the arrest of the gunman. Then in December 2008, the police released a video of the Range Rover at the intersection of Queen and Bathurst. So this is just a video showing the car driving through the intersection. And this would have taken place a few minutes before the murders happened. In June 2009, on the one-year anniversary of the murders, uh, police appealed to the public for information. Police held a news conference in which they released a photo of Oliver and Dylan taken literally minutes before they were shot to death. It's 
really hard to see this photo. It's um, it's always difficult to see photos of people in you know a, who are about to die minutes later. But the photo is of Dylan driving and Oliver in the passenger seat, and they're laughing. The photo is taken by the girlfriend in the back seat, and. I'll put a link below so you can take a look at it if you're interested. Uh, it was a very personal thing for them to release, and the police were hoping that it would drum up leads. Unfortunately, this did not. A person of interest has never been named in these murders. The case picked up attention again in 2014, but for a terrible reason. When I was researching this, I was shocked to find out this piece of information. I personally hadn't heard of it, so it came as quite a surprise to me. Andrew Gilchrist was the friend that Dylan and Oliver were visiting that evening. He was the one whose keys that they had accidentally taken. In June, actually on June 13th, 2014, so six years to the day of his friend's murders, Andrew was found dead in his apartment near Bathurst in Davenport, and he had died of an apparent drug overdose. Some people on the internet are calling it mysterious. I find people pick at the littlest things to make something out of nothing. A lot of stuff is just semantics. Police released some information about this, and I'm going to read a quote from an article in the National Post about the death of Andrew. Quote, during the afternoon and the evening, he had some beers, a couple of drinks, and he ingested, he snorted some drugs. He went to bed about 1 a.m. and was reportedly calm, lucid, happy, but very, very tired. He fell asleep immediately and started snoring loudly, and anyone who's ever been anywhere near Andrew asleep can relate to that. He seemed to have had some sleep apnea symptoms, and sometime in the middle of the night, he stopped snoring, he stopped breathing. Perhaps as a result of an apnea episode or the drugs or his breathing response kicking in, it doesn't appear to have been an overdose in the traditional sense, but likely precipitated by the drugs or the combination or by Andrew's propensity to take risks and misjudge his limits. The fact is, we don't know for certain why he died, and we may never know, but we take a lot of comfort in knowing he had a happy and carefree last day and a very peaceful death. That floored me when I found that. I think just the irony of him being found dead six years to the day of his friend's murders, he was obviously a, played a big role in this event. According to reports, he struggled immensely with guilt and grief over the death of his two best friends. He Every year he attended the memorial that was held at Ramsden Park, which is around Young and Bloor, for Dylan and Oliver, and they tied ribbons to trees in remembrance for the two guys that had been killed. Sadly, that year, 2014, they started adding white ribbons to memorialize Andrew. The most recent press coverage I could find was from June 11, 2016. Basically, this article just goes over the fact that police don't know anything. No suspect in the shooting has ever been named. Detective Sergeant Gary Giroux, he's been the lead investigator since the beginning of the case. He says that the biggest challenge in solving this has been understanding why the gunman shot Ellis and Martin. And all this time, Giroux said he still doesn't have a motive. Quote, that has always been the biggest hurdle for me, is that what was the, what was the motive for their shooting? 
It hasn't been determined if the two men were targeted or if there is another reason, such as mistake in identity. Drew said to his knowledge, the friends weren't involved in any nefarious activity, adding they lived a non-high-risk lifestyle. They were really quite impeccable characters, Drew said. They were from good families. They were very well educated. They had good jobs. Drew said there have been few developments since the shootings in 2008. He said there have been a few vague, intangible leads as a result of yearly updates. It's really sad to see that there's been little to no progress made on this case. I find it really surprising considering it's one of the most high-profile cases that Toronto has seen in the last 10 years. Let's delve into theories. Uh, there's a few here. Let's start with mistaken identity. So there, are, this seems to be one that is pretty accepted by the public. The shooter was only 18 to 24 inches away from the car. This kind of discredits this theory. The shooter was close enough to see who he was shooting. So he shot Oliver mm -hmm. first and then he moved around the car and shot Dylan. I think that this mistaken identity motive or cause would be more believable if he had shot Oliver, realized his mistake and then run away. Another theory is that this was some sort of a grudge, that there had been an argument with a stranger. The girlfriend reportedly said that there had been no fights. The friends were in and out of the condo that evening, driving around to different locations in the area, and the girlfriend says no fights, no interactions stood out to her. Some people have brought up that perhaps it wasn't a grudge or an based off of an incident that happened that day. Their friend Andrew lived in the area, so they were frequently there. Possible that there had been incidents in the past. Another theory is that it was a botched carjacking. Obviously, this isn't... This seems fairly likely, uh, in my opinion. It's, you know, an expensive car. Range Rover is an expensive car. However, police say it's highly unlikely given the girlfriend's account. They also say it wouldn't make sense for a thief to shoot the owner still inside the car. So I guess most carjackings happen when somebody's about to get in the car. They take the keys from the person before they're actually in the car. That kind of makes sense to me. There were two people in the car too. There's a lot of expensive cars in Toronto. You'd be shocked. There's tons. I mean, Mercedes everywhere. And without knowing the girlfriend's account, it's hard to discredit this theory myself, but the police say that it's just not possible. Another possible theory is road rage. So this is the remaining and leading theory was that the shooter was motivated by some form of road rage. Police say that it's possible that without even noticing or anyone in the car noticing that Dylan, who was driving the car, cut off someone during this short drive. So let's remember they were at the condo. They drove some distance away. I haven't been able to find out where. They got a phone call from the friend and were asked to turn around. I think it was maybe three to five minutes that elapsed from the time that they drove away to when they returned. This is possible. It makes sense. The police say that this person would have had to have been driving at the time in order to stay with the SUV as Ellis returned to the condo. However, the girlfriend does not report hearing car squealing or even a car door opening and closing. So if this was a road rage incident, 
then where was the other car? There was the suspect or person mentioned on the bike. It's possible that they may have accidentally sideswiped this person on the bike and that resulted in road rage. If you're from Toronto, let me tell you, there is a huge war between cyclists and drivers. So I have no problem believing that this is could be possible that they got someone angry enough on a bike. Uh, it, it's very contentious here. I, I don't think it was a random killing, but I do think it was an impulsive one. I've read through different theories, which I'm not so crazy about. I don't really want to say anything disparaging about these young men without any proof, but people have mentioned that they thought it was a coke deal gone bad. With the death of their friend Andrew from drugs happening six years later, that gives that theory a little bit more clout. However, I think if it were drug-related, the police would have release that information to the public because that would drum up new leads, new links, so on and so forth. I think it would be easier for them to follow a trail of drugs than just a random killing. As always, I'm going to come back to my point that Toronto police are really tight-lipped about details. They, everything I've said to you is everything that I've spent hours trying to find and research and I've regurgitated it to you. There are an alarming number of cold cases in Toronto, especially gun murders. And given the fact that this is such a high profile case and it was two young men from affluent families and backgrounds and this hasn't been solved, I mean, I think Toronto police have to change their tactics somehow. In regards to cold case crimes, they literally just in the past couple of years started a website on cold cases. That to me is ridiculous that it's taken them this long to utilize the internet to their advantage, especially if they want to reach members of the public and get this message across. I'm still deciding how much of my personal opinions I want to put in this podcast. I don't want to offend anybody. I'm happy to lay out the facts as they are presented and give different theories that have popped up in my research. I'm still going to consider how much of my opinions I want to share. I don't want to offend anybody. The fact that this murder is going on almost 10 years is, and the fact that it's only taken me 20 minutes to tell you all the information, and that includes me theorizing on different motives, says a lot about the state of the information that is released to the public. I'm hoping now that this podcast brought to you in 2017 will drum up interest in the case. People who maybe have better internet research skills than I do will be able to perhaps find some related murders in the area. I don't know. I just think it's important that the story is retold. So there you go. There you have it. That is the story of the murders of Dylan Ellis and Oliver Martin, or as it has come to be commonly known, the Range Rover murders. Anyone with information is encouraged to contact the Homicide Unit at 416-808-7400 or Crime Stoppers anonymously at 416-222-8475.
1-800-273-8377. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please feel free to comment and let me know about any cases that you would like me to cover in the future. I have a lot of exciting episodes planned, but I'd love to hear from what you all would like me to cover. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Be safe and see you next week. Thank you.